Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Susie Harder on the show. Susie is a licensed speech and language pathologist and is an experienced clinician who devotes much of her passion to working with children, teens, and adults who stutter. She works in both private practice and the school setting to help support children who stutter. In addition to direct therapy, Susie trains speech and language pathologists to work more effectively with students who stutter. In addition, Susie teaches graduate-level fluency course at California State University, Fresno. During her time at Fresno Unified from 2011 to 2015, Susie designed the framework for a fluency consultant role to utilize specialty skills and support speech and language pathologists working with children who stutter. In addition to her quote-unquote day job, Susie also created the Junior Authors Program in September of 2020, days after the Creek Fire affected Big Creek and Pine Ridge area families. It was developed as an educationally focused social-emotional support for children and families feeling loss and grief due to the fire. Schools across the nation and the world have joined together to have their students involved in helping our local kids impacted by the fire. This was a great conversation that covered a lot, and Susie and I clearly share a love for doing just one more thing. Let's go meet Susie and Baker. Politics, religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. So, Susie, where do you like to eat in Fresno? If I was being invited to lunch tomorrow, I would pick heirloom. And I'd probably Man, grab a it is like It is like <laughs> one after another. It is like, it, 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 that, it just must be the pandemic place. It's everyone <laughs> has mastered the pandemic. Because literally everyone that, I mean, not everyone, I don't want to say everyone. But a lot of people, okay, let's, let's go to your second favorite place. Yes. We talk about heirloom all the time, and I'm tired of right. giving them free marketing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they don't need it because they're already making enough money. So what's the second favorite place? I have loved the deconstructed cocktails from Modernist downtown. Ah, yeah. So what, what are some of your favorite cocktails there? I've only been there once, um, and I, I went around like the holidays, and so mm-hmm. I got some crazy gingerbread sugar nonsense that was delicious. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I haven't had a kind of a normal cocktail down there before. Yeah, they, um, Poe and his wife, and I think it was his wife's kind of vision and concept that came together. Um, they're just really great people, but I usually do something with lavender, something very, you know, <laughs> herbal, very, <laughs> I, I love that you can just tell them kind of a profile though, and then they just go for it. Yeah, I mean, there's something about a, a fresh cocktail uh, when you're drinking liquor to have something that feels like life giving, <laughs> which right. is well, and my husband and I, and he's from the Valley as well. Um, but I had moved out of town for grad school. And so we were in Chicago and we were kind of like, here's our plan. We're going to do the two years and we'll be back. And then it was, okay, we love Chicago. And then every winter we'd say, actually, we're going to move back right now. <laughs> and so we kind of did the one more year, one more year. And we were there for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And so there are times where, you know, just after 
I spent all of my twenties in the big city and then kind of coming back mm-hmm. and it really makes you appreciate what's here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I grew up in the country. So up kind of towards Shaver Lake. And so just the nature of what that is and, you know, everybody in Chicago, when we moved was like, why would you leave California to come here? And now, you know, then moving back, it's like, why did you leave Chicago to come back to Fresno? Right. Um, but it's well, really why don't cool. you, why don't you support a pet theory of yeah. mine? Cause my, you know, I've visited the, I haven't lived, I've always lived in California in, um, but I, like you, uh, lived in LA and San Francisco for mm-hmm. about 10 years before moving back. Um, but when people, you know, when people talk about the Valley summers and say, Oh, I don't know how you do it. I mean, it, it's similar in some ways, would you say to like Chicago winter in that you're just kind of looking to stay indoors during a certain season? Would you say it's a comparable thing? This is my like, um, yeah. like you know, if I'm creating a, a brochure to right. get people to move to Fresno, that's kind of my sales pitch. Yeah. You know, I feel like the summers as much as they're not pleasant, they're not bad. You know, if I was kind of like rating a spectrum, like the, sh- the winters in Chicago are why the term seasonal depression exists. I mean, it is, there's no escape. There's no good. There's no, you know, I mean, it's so long. Um, I mean, try to have kids and do all of that. So, I mean, it's just nuts. So um, when I think of summers here, I think, okay, well, if that took, I don't know what, 10 points of like, just like drudge your way through it, a summer here takes one, you know, it, it's kind of like you you have the, your AC, you can jump in the pool, you can, right. you know, kind of navigate around it. It doesn't take over your life. Right. Um, and it feels you know, like, like too, some of the things you decide to do. Absolutely. And it feels like you got to rate it based on what the solution is. Right. So if the, if you're in a winter place, the solution is to sit inside hundred huddled under a blanket. The solution to heat in the summer is being in a pool. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> you know, whatever the oh solution gosh. is should dictate my, what your plan is. Right. Um, my, absolutely. My, um, then boyfriend, now husband, we have these memories of sleeping in our snowboarding clothes. Like that's how cold we were. <laughs> it was that's so horrible. Heat. I mean, it's just terrible. And so, yeah, do you so scoff you think at people in town when they say they're cold? Well, I scoff at myself now because oh. I'm never prepared. So I don't, you know, like, I mean, not to say I'm never prepared, but generally speaking, you know, I have just normal California clothes on. And so if I'm outside, I'm kind of like, oh, oh gosh, I'm cold. And I think the Chicago me would hate that I just said that. It's 40 right. degrees outside. It's not it's, cold. Is it kind but of like a prepared, badge? Like it's a badge there? Like so. you can withstand the cold? I'd like to give myself a badge. I don't know. Is that a thing? (laughs) Well, let me give you this quick little story because I think it illustrates just how cold, you know, and I grew up skiing and snowboarding. And so I thought, I know the cold and just it's, you bundle up and you're fine. Uh, One day in Chicago, I left the gym, had showers, I have wet hair. Um, By the time I got to my car, so I'm opening my car door and I turn around and something pokes my face and, you know, felt hard, like, gosh, am I bleeding? It was my hair had frozen in the time that I had left the front door and gotten to my car and had like bent and like poked my face and like a needle kind of thing. That was what, in 60 seconds? I mean, it's just nuts. So yes, pool. I'll take a pool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, 
we when I lived in LA, we had uh, neighbors that lived in the apartment next to us that moved uh, to there from Minnesota, and they would tell stories of like getting off the plane to go home for Christmas. And like their eyes would start tearing up and then the tears would freeze. <laughs> and that was all the sales pitch that I needed to never, never have the desire to want to move to Minneapolis. Oh Although I do know uh, <laughs> someone from Fresno that moved to Minneapolis and he likes yes. it so far. But in any case, let me ask you one more question. This is not food related before we get yeah. into, you know, different things. Yeah. Um, you know, some countries have uh, mandatory uh, military uh, enlistment, you know, I'm thinking like, uh, places, there's some places in Asia. I don't, I don't remember any specific countries, but do you think there should be a mandatory leaving period for everyone that's grows up in Fresno? They should oh. be forced to go live somewhere else. Oh yes. You know, so I've had this conversation and I love that concept that, you know, really how you strengthen your community is you go see other things and then you bring those strengths back with you. And, uh, you know, it's really easy to, when you grow up in a place, look at the things that aren't there for you. And then when you move away, you really have that appreciation for all the things that are here for you. And so when we moved back, it wasn't kind of like, oh gosh, we have to move back. It was more of, we're ready to move back. We want to start a family. We want our kids to grow up around their grandparents. And you know what? Like, we get to be right here next to the lakes. We get to go on hikes. We get to go skiing and snowboarding. We can go to the beach. We can go to the city. We can go, you know, mm -hmm. like how neat that is. And I think that that's the part from the people we met in Chicago that sounded so appealing. Like, so you could just get in the car and drive to the beach or you could get in the car and be up in the mountains. That's, yeah. you know, that's such a crazy thing to them. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the reality too is that every place has trade-offs. You know, you're never going to have a perfect place. And as soon as you move to LA thinking it's perfect, you'll yeah. meet the 405. Um, you know, every place has its issues. Um, and I think once, because when you grow up, you think there's some utopic place out there. Like there's sure. this big city that's going to have everything I could ever imagine. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be perfect. And then you get there and you realize, yeah, it's not that great. It has some great things about it, but it's like every other place it has <laughs> trade-offs, right? And I think that you don't really have that kind of, I don't want to say maturity because I don't want to sound like I'm condescending to people, but mm -hmm. you don't really have that perspective unless you go see that other places also have limits, mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense. Right. Well, I mean, even just the pure concept of seeing other things, you know, like you're a school teacher. So when I was working in Fresno Unified, I had kind of like cultivated this program for um, basically being an in-house specialist and saying, you know, all of these people need this expertise. So let me help. So I had three days a week and I would go around and it was so amazing because I wasn't just at my school. And in my room, I was going and seeing all of the other 70 speech pathologists across the district and visiting and seeing, you know, and you just gain so much from that. And it's really easy to not acknowledge that or to know that that's there if you haven't seen it, you know? Right. Um, when I think there's something really neat about, like in Chicago, I was so the area that I was in was so heavily saturated with specialists that it was kind of like I had this idea of for my field um, working with kids who stutter like that's just kind of like if you go into this you better be really good exceptional because that's what you need to do and I was around all those people and then when I moved back I was really um, there was a lot of work 
work to be done on <laughs> building the knowledge base and what to be doing. And then it kind of like launched me into, okay, well, first let's start at the grad school level. And so I taught the grad school course for fluency there. And it's kind of like, let's start getting some really great people out into our community that know the current things to be doing that are really helpful. Um, and then it went to, you know, continuing ed courses and professional development. You know, I mean, I was still working the whole time, but it has been a mission of mine since coming back of let's, you know, <laughs> let's take the, um, you know, the pieces that are outdated and let's set those aside and just like a medical professional you wouldn't want you know you want the good people the really specialized people and so sure. um, it's been nice to be a resource in that way um, but I would never have known that had I not been out of the area exactly you know? and let's talk about uh, awesome. SLPs SLPs yeah um, so yeah. you know you know you have these uh, uh, kind of occurrences when, where you are in a group of friends or you have a circle and you oversee one job profession just because you've selected your group. I feel like I know so many SLPs and it feels like the world is full of them, but of course that's <laughs> just my, my, my group of friends or whatever. Um, do you, but this is a real question yeah. because there is a lot of like training programs. Do you see the market getting saturated with more SLPs nowadays or is there still just a, a demand for that kind of expertise? There is a demand and, um, you know, I mean, the Fresno State program is so impacted, and so there are so many applicants each semester. And um, no, it's definitely something that we need more of. And when either high school or college kids come to me to ask, I mean, I I love my field, and I feel like who you work around is such an important piece. And you know, I, I jokingly kind of dare people like go find an SLP you don't like. I mean, like we work on communication. And so there's just this general nature about, you know, even though I'm, I, if you would have met me in elementary school, you would say she's so shy. She doesn't say a word to anyone. That's not my current personality because my job is to talk to people and with people and to coach kids on communication. Um, but no, anyway, it's a really neat field because you get to look at just the basics of communication. Um, today, for instance, I was fielding a um, call from a parent about a four-year-old who stutters. And, um, you know, we were just talking about all of the pieces that we're building in from a therapy perspective, but really how strong of a communicator this will make this child because we were identifying, you know, kind of, um, you know, and this goes up through however old too, but, uh, you know, identifying talking turns and teaching kids very early on, you know, not like you're going to get in trouble if you interrupt, but just if it's not your talking turn, it's not your talking turn and how to pay attention to that. And, you know, for a child's not going to, you know, self-monitor and adjust in that way, but you know, a nine-year-old, absolutely. And they need to be able to read that body language and to know kind of when to shift and how to find, um, you know, those areas of interest to establish commonalities when you're trying to make a friend and just all of those really kind of basic things that the kids that I work with end up being almost like experts in, and then they end up being fabulous communicators. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's something before we get into uh, stuttering. Um, that's something that 
we don't really, I mean, we try to teach in school, like how to be a good conversationalist, but we don't, we don't assess students on that. Like there's no assessment. There's no like SAT section on like, how do you, how do you have a genial conversation with your in-laws? Like that doesn't happen. We don't test them because, because it's, it's kind of one of those hard things. Like we think that any way you communicate is fine because you're being authentic to you. Right. But we do know that there's bad ways to communicate and there's, uh, you know, and so it feels like it's either not, it's either you, you don't teach it or you just learn it with your therapist later on in life when you're, <laughs> when you're like, you know, when you're like deciding, you know, deciding whether you have you're to divorced or not. Stuff. Right. You know, yeah. you know, yeah. you're like in couples counseling, you're like, why do you say it that way? You know, but I, I, I think right. you're right. I think there's that gap in education in terms of teaching kids how to have conversations. When really it's worse now because they're on their phones all the time, right? I know. Well, and you know, even things like, um, you know, just eye contact. And I talk a lot with kids about eye contact. And for kids who stutter, it's a really important key piece to kind of hold them and kind of help them work through a moment of stuttering so they don't get lost in it if they look away. But just as a person, you know, how important that is. And for my friends' kids who don't have any, you know, don't need a speech pathologist, but what I end up doing is I coach them. And so we jokingly call me the conversation coach because I'm just very real with kids. Like if you're doing that, if you're looking away while I'm trying to talk to you and I'm your friend, you know what I'm going to think? I'm going to think you're not really interested or, you know, you're being rude or I'm just not going to come back and have another conversation with you. Right. And, you know, kind of building some of that perspective for kids on, um, you know, just kind of how things are being perceived by others. So even if you feel shy and you're looking down, the perception might not be that you're shy. It could be you're not paying attention. And they're like, what? Right. No, no, no. I would never want someone to think I'm not paying attention. Yeah. So, so yeah. What, what is a stutter? So stuttering is when there's this interruption in the speech movement. So we, the umbrella that it falls under is disfluency. So all of us as adults, kids do, we all have disfluencies. Those are those imperfections where if you typed it out, there'd be a little bit of a, you know, um, you know, hesitation there or, and then, well, so what we did, you know, revision and, and maybe a repetition or so, those things, although they're classified as disfluencies, aren't stuttering. And so a lot of times I hear well-intentioned adults telling kids, you know, everyone stutters, it's okay. And that really for kids is not very helpful because not everybody does stutter. You know, right. there are 5% of kids go through a period of stuttering of the adult population is closer to 1%. Um, stuttering is where there's, you know, from a motoric standpoint, there's this stop in the movement from your air and your lungs are going through your vocal cords and going through your mouth to make the sounds. And there's some sort of involuntary kind of pause right there. So you get either a part word repetition or, or a prolongation or a block. Uh, right now with masks, it's such a tricky thing for kids who stutter because if they're starting and, you know, really we're using all of that information, you know, when we're looking at a child's face to help us know what's happening. And so if they're stuck behind there and you can't hear them yet, you know, they're getting talked over there. You know, I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> challenges with that right now. Yeah. Um, Two things but, in response to that, what you're saying. 
One, um, kids are, as a teacher, I know this because I see it every day, kids are so aware when there's a slight difference between one child and the next. They can notice the minute difference. They can notice anxiety. They can notice anything happening with the other kids in the room. And so to act like, you know, eh, it's just whatever. It, and then, which leads to the second, which is, do you, do you see a lot of parents that just want to be like, yeah, they'll grow out of it or, oh, just ignore it or, oh, you know, to, to kind of under pathologize something? Yeah, that's a really great take on it. Um, you know, kids really are, um, they're so inquisitive. They want to know what's happening with that peer in class and why he can't say it. And oftentimes we kind of forget that we, we do owe them an answer. And so, you know, we can't always just kind of say, be nice, be nice, because nice is, is appropriate. Also, that child has a right to be curious, and that's part of what it is, right? So we need to supply those answers. And so one of the things that I do with all students, second grade and older, is help them prep, and usually I do it with them as a classroom presentation, and we teach their friends about what happens, you know, kind of like, how can you be a good friend in the moment of stuttering, and how can you be encouraging, and let's show you the actual speech mechanism and what's happening when that happens, and sometimes you might hear it, and sometimes you might not. Sometimes, you know, and just kind of diving into that and allowing the kids to ask questions, and the questions that kids have are so phenomenal, and they're so real, you know, um, so after those classroom presentations, kids walk out with just a strut in their step. Usually we give out candy, so that helps, but there's right. kind of this new sense of empowerment, like, yeah, I just taught my class about this. And for any teasing and bullying situations, that's usually my first, you know, kind of go-to step, and it really minimizes a lot of things moving forward. Um, yeah. You know, I, um, we all go to the dentist, right? And I, um, a few years, eh, five years ago, I went to the dentist and they said, you have a little bit of a crossbite. And I was like, no, I don't. No, I don't. I'm an adult. I don't have any problems. <laughs> and <laughs> they kept saying it. This is going somewhere. Believe me, it's going somewhere. No, I love the idea of just the concept. I'm an adult. I'm fine. If yeah, I no, say I have a problem, I've got one. Other than that, I, exactly, I don't have any. <laughs> exactly. I only have problems if they're of my own invention. <laughs> so anyway, I, um, you know, was in the sense of denial. Right. And then, you know, cause it's, it's, it's a minor issue, but it could be corrected with braces. Right. And you know, I'm 30 years old at this point. I'm like, there's no way I'm getting braces right now. What, what, that's something you do when you're a kid. And I kind of think speech is like that a little bit, right? Like I tend to associate it with childhood. You go to speech class yep. and not, you know, something that you would work to correct as an adult. Do you get the sense mm -hmm. that like adults are much less likely to address their speech issues because it's like considered a, a domain of childhood? Well, yeah. And I mean, yes, in a lot of ways. And what's interesting about that is, you know, when, <sighs> here's the quick answer. Well, one quick answer. Um, when I see adults, tackle it, it's because stuttering is genetic in a sense. And so it's their child is going through it and they're seeing their child go through it and they come to me and they're like, can you help my child? And then I'm kind of looking at them like, and you? And they're like, yeah, I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, But you know, as adults, we don't really prioritize our, our time and money on how to help ourselves. But if it's something that our child needs, we're right there and we're on 
on it. And so it's really interesting seeing it through the lens of, you know, parents that are now navigating it with their children. Um, the last week I was teaching a um, CEU course for the speech pass down in uh, Bakersfield and they, they had six hours of me on Zoom. Like, can you imagine? That's like, a long that's day. That's just so much. And so speaking of modernist cocktails. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I, I scheduled some guest speakers. So I had a parent go. that was um, an educator, but a longtime parent of a client, you know, her son has been sure. my client. And um, one of the guest speakers that I brought in was he's in law school now, but I've worked with him since he was in high school. And he is just an exceptional person. And it was so fun watching, you know, therapy should transition with the age. And um that, you know, so I have like this teen mentor program because teens that are too cool to come to speech, they will gladly come help shape, you know, those younger kids and kind of tell them a little bit and be kind of the Q and A panel person. Um, and so we do kind of staggered mentorship where the college kids are the mentors for the high school kids and, you know, young adult kind of like, okay, well let's, let's host a, you know, group on interviewing. And although I have suggestions also, it's so valuable to hear it from someone who has just gone through that. And so really, you know, appreciating and bringing that piece in um, that any of us that are considered, you know, specialists or experts, like we're on the, we're an expert on that specific area, not on the person. Um, and my experience is much different than what someone brings who's traveled that journey. So it's kind of yeah. a neat pairing. Mm -hmm. So imagine I'm an adult that's dealing with some stuttering issues sell it to me. Why should I, you know, if I've ignored it, you know, I'm 45 years old or whatever, I've, yes. I've ignored it my whole life, or it's just become part of my, uh, you know, personality in some sense. Right. Like what, yeah. why, why would I go to therapy at, at this point in my life? Yeah. Well, I mean, it would all come down to the impact. Is it impacting you in a negative way in your daily life? And when you look at say value-based living and is it pulling you back from something that you would otherwise want to be doing? And so if it's not holding you back, you know, you would have the opportunity if you wanted to kind of figure out some things that could help make talking easier in certain situations, but the impact is fairly minimal at that point. So if you're looking at say a situation where someone is pulling back from a job opportunity because that job opportunity involves a lot more speaking or, um, you know, talking on the phone is a big deal because you don't have the visual presence. And so if that next role involves a lot of phone work, and so I'm not going to do that. Those are the times where I really see that opportunity for adults is kind of like, let's look at those transitions and identify what are those key things that are so important to you. Um, just recently, I had a mom who came in and she was kind of like, I don't think I need it for me. It's for my child. And then as we were talking, you know, we were kind of coming up with what is it that you would want to be doing right now. And she's like, you know, I always thought I'd be so involved with my kids' teachers. And that's just, that's such a value of mine. And I have been trying since the beginning of school to tell this teacher that I stutter and every day I chicken out. And she's like, so I've never talked to her. You know, so then when you look at, okay, well, really good therapy is really identifying, you know, on a situational hierarchy, what are our priorities and how do we make those happen and how do we systematically work toward that? And so, um, you know, I think those are the pieces, just like say with a nutritional coach, right? Or a nutrition coach. At some point you're kind of like, I don't need anyone. I know how to eat healthy, but if there's, if it's impacting you in some way and you're kind of like, okay, I've got this goal 
now I really need help. How do I, in an efficient way, get from here to here? And so. What is, what is a person who's stuttering? What is their experiencing life like when they experience, like I was um, watching, you know, I teach middle school, so I listen to kinds of music. I was watching the Billie Eilish documentary uh, last yeah. night with my wife. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was long. Let me say that. It was long, uh, but it was very sweet. Anyway, so uh, Billie has Tourette's. Um, and um, there's a few, like, filmed moments of it um, where she's having, I forget what she described it as, but she described, like, some, I think she said, I don't want to, misquoted or whatever, but like a tick is kind of taking over. Um, and she was like talking through it and had kind of like this meta language for describing what was happening to her. Do people that stutter have a similar kind of like, I know that I'm stuttering right now and this is kind of what's happening. And I, it's frustrating because I want to get past it, but I, you know, do they have that meta right. language in the same Absolutely. way? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, so we look at the before, the during, and the after. And so the during is is a really kind of panic-induced moment. And depending on the situation, though, you know, if you're talking with someone that you feel very comfortable talking to, that won't be, you know, as prominent as if you're, you know, in a presentation moment or doing something, you know, in front of someone that's like you're on a date or whatever. Um you know, the before period of thinking about possibly stuttering is where a lot of people spend a lot of time and mm-hmm. that anticipatory behavior of noticing and then potentially rerouting or word switching or avoiding. And so you, you know, kind of end up with this very um, flowery sentence that doesn't mean anything. And it's because they've been dodging the moments of stuttering all the way through and then they're way off track. Um, in general, so this description was from a third grader of how he described stuttering, and I thought it was so spot on. And so he said, you know, picture yourself walking through a forest, and you're walking, and everything's normal, and all of a sudden you get shot with an arrow. So you look around, you don't know where it came from or what's going on, but you still have to get out of this path. So now, instead of walking so comfortably, you're now tiptoeing. And you want to protect yourself, you want to have a shield, or you want to do something, but you have nothing, and it's invisible, so it could just happen at any time. So the whole rest of that path, even if it's only one arrow, you're thinking about the arrow the whole time. Um, And I think that that's a really good description for kids, that, you know, we see the overt moment of stuttering, so that surface level behavior of getting stuck and depending on that child's temperament and age and you know all of those things what happened prior to that and what happens after that is really much more weighted than the actual kind of pure moment of stuttering got it so it's 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 a it's something that is beyond just that single moment of the i don't know what you call it like yeah. episode or whatever yeah. but it's mm-hmm. like this kind of build up and like this kind of, cause I, I, you know, we all, we all know this, like when we have those moments, you know, and I, I don't, uh, we, we talk about neurodiversity a lot or whatever in in schools these days. Um, And I often forget about things like stuttering when I, you know, assign a class presentation or something like that. And I forget that, Oh, that might be incredibly traumatizing. Uh, to a student that has a stuttering issue and they might think about that presentation for the entire week and it's all it's in their brain and and I 
you know, I hate this element of our culture that wants to like, just like tough it out, you know, because those are the people that don't have a stutter. <laughs> you know, those are the people <laughs> that don't have the issue. Well, tough right. it out. Yeah. No, you know, it's like, Aaron Rodgers just tell me to throw a football. Just throw a football, man. Just throw a football. Of course. Right, and there's no guidance there, you know. So I think there's that. That's where the hierarchy comes in of being really systematic. And you know, for kids, especially in middle school, self advocacy is such a big piece. You know, you don't need to have your SLP or your parent call. You need to write an email to your teacher and hear. You know, what is it that your ask is? Is your ask that you'd like to present it um, first, just directly to your teacher with no students in the room? You know, is, is your ask that they're taking the time component away? And so instead of it being five minutes max, that there's no time commitment. And so the perceived sense of urgency is different. Like, what is your ask? And then what's the most effective way to ask that? And you're your own self-advocate at that age. And so like the beginning of school, we always, always um, have kids write a letter to their teacher. And, you know, it's not, I want to get out of stuff. It's, you know, hey, here's me. Here's what I'm into. Here's what I like here's what happens sometimes when I talk, here's what I'm working on, you know, here's what I'd love your help with. And, you know, sometimes they even have a code, you know, kind of like if I raise my hand and it's in a fist, that means I know the answer, but please don't call on me. It's a really hard talking day. And I promise not to use that all the time for everything. Right. <laughs> um, or, you know, just kind of some, some sort of communication that allows for kids to, to figure out what is it that I need? Like, some kids, when they sit in the front of the room, that is where they feel best because they're not looking at everyone else and it kind of, you know, they're much more, you know, they're just pre visually present with the teacher right there. Some kids, that is so anxiety producing because they're thinking about all the kids behind them that could be making fun of them the entire time. And so yeah. for them, sitting at the back is better, you know, so there's no one right answer, but just that process, right, of teaching self-advocacy, teaching those that, you know, nobody is here to take care of you. We're teaching you how to do these things in a really independent way. Yeah. And it's such a hard thing because you, you want to challenge kids to, you know, uh, face their fears, quote unquote. Um, and you want to push them and have that, whatever that, uh, forget the Ted talk where they talk about good stress and bad stress. Um, but you know, I, I, there, there's that desire, but also, you know, uh, every kid is different and just like you wouldn't, you know, I, with, with education, we want to make things as, uh, diversify or what's, what's the word I'm looking for now? I can't even think of the word. Uh, we want to make education specific to the kid, right? Yes. And we yes, want to we want to have options for them, right? Um, we want to individualize as best we can. Um, and it, it, at first, it sounds like I think to some people, maybe some cranky old teachers, not me, um, and maybe some cranky parents that like, oh well, you know, every kid is a like their special flower, and they, you know, they they get all their. Right. Uh, the point is, is that some kids if you give them something different, they're going to flourish. So why wouldn't you want to do that? And I, you know, it's, it's beyond me, but let's finish with one question on uh, speech stuff before we talk about the junior authors program. Um, so how, how is, how is uh, speech language pathology? How is kind of, and specifically talking about schools, how has that improved and how would you, if you were made the grand czar of SLP work in school districts, what would you, would you do? Yeah. Would you change programs or would you just add a lot more staff in that domain? Like what, what are some big yeah. changes that could improve the program for everybody? 
Yeah, I love that. that let me, I'd love to dream that up. That's yeah. fabulous. Um, SLPs are so hardworking. And what ends up happening is that we're, you know, in the school setting, we're generalists, right? Just kind of like your, you know, kind of general practitioner. And so when you get things that are highly specialized, it, it's, it's tricky because that's not what you're doing all day, every day. And so you have the things that you feel really comfortable with. And then you have the things you're kind of like, I would rather refer out. And could I potentially kind of, you know, wander my way through this and provide service minutes? Sure. But what's, what's really the end goal and how do we maximize and, you know, work efficiently toward these goals? And so, um, what I see as such a need is school districts having, whether that's contracts or not, or it's in-house, but having people that are identified as those experts that, you know, Fresno Unified has 70 something SLPs. So to have, you know, one person that does fluency or stuttering, one person that does a practice of speech, one person that, you know, and so it was fabulous because when I was, piloting that it and you know it was so well supported and so I think everyone that was a part of it um I had you know tiered level of response so I could just I could be available on the phone so if it's kind of like I don't know what to do with this situation um you know or can you help me map out a proper avow um, and then we did kind of like you know zoom based things and then we did in person um, where I would come and do the avow and then help write the IEP and write things to make sure you're starting where you need to start. Um, you know, and that doesn't just exist for stuttering, but other kind of subcategories. I would love for there to be a way for that to work where speech paths don't have to kind of feel the burden because there ends up being this really, um, this kind of delicate line between then private practitioners are kind of like, oh gosh, your school speech path was working on blank. Um, you know, and it's kind of like, that's not fair because the school speech path has 60 kids on our caseload and is doing yeah. her best with every single one of them. And there should be no blame. There should be an appreciation for that team. Um, right. You know, so if I get to work one-on-one -on -one with this student and have parents there, that's a totally different setting, right? Uh, so being able to utilize that as a kind of in-house specialist. It sounds kind of like what you're describing. It's like, um, you know, kind of how doctors have specialties and it's like if you had a general a general practitioner that was like doing heart surgery totally. that was you know doing osteopathic stuff or you Absolutely. know it's doing like every different discipline that they have maybe like a tiny bit of knowledge in right so it's, and it's kind like, of like let me dig out my grad school books i think that like that's just not a fair request and that's not a blame it's just like yeah that's the exact analogy i use all the time yeah. So, so what you, so your vision is like maybe have someone that's kind of general that, that maybe can diagnose what the issue is and then refer it. So as opposed to just being like, you know, like in the old West where you're like, you're the country doctor and you're just here for everyone <laughs> in the little village, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, having a point person, so kind of like a lead for that where they're the go-to resource. So you know, like we, like we developed out our material system and our eval tools. And so that was really, you know, kind of a first step, right? So you might not, you might just need some more materials to be able to do this well, 
or <laughs> you might need some guidance or you might need. So there was um, my role within that was not to be the direct service provider, but to be kind of the person behind the direct service provider. And there was um, one student that we did just a case study for um, he was a second grader and it was, you know, one time a week for 20 minutes a week in the school setting, no parents, no anything present. Um, but by the time he was qualified and dismissed, it was literally a quarter. And it was such a clear evidence of if you have the right people doing the right things, this doesn't need to be a six year process for this child. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. unfortunate. So, um, transitioning, I, um, remember, the first drive that I took up to Shaver after the Creek fire. Um, and I, I just want to say this before we talk about the junior office program. Yeah. The coconut cream pie. I think you know where I'm going with this. We lost one of my favorite sources of baked goods um, when we lost Cressman's. And when I drove past it, on the way up to Shaver, it was just like, I, you know, I was about ready to do Romeo and Juliet, like lay down next to Cressman's and die with it. I mean, those, those, uh, you know, those cookies. And, and, and that's obviously a totally insensitive thing. Cause this is people's livelihoods in their homes. Right. Um, and so I, you know, it was, it's, it was a tragic drive. Um, I needed to see it. Obviously, we all need to see it to just know what it was because we all watched on TV and then we, you know, were, you know, we were already wearing masks. So we, you know, just kind of went from our cars to avoid the smoke, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but people up there were living in, you know, Mad Max post-apocalypse world uh, for a while. And so connect us to, uh, you started a program called Junior Authors, right? Um, yeah. And how is that connected to the Creek Fire? And, and tell us a little bit about why you started that. Yeah, so speaking of Crestmans, then I feel like just the journey of acknowledging all of the pieces going on up there is really where this this whole kind of effort and this it, what ended up being this, you know, kind of, okay, I'm going to do this to help. Okay, now it's expanded to this to help. It really is all, you know, rooted in what is happening? What do people need? So um, the owners of Crestmans, Ty and Tara, I went to high school with them and they have two kids and um, their daughter who is in kindergarten this year has been one of like the people that I've just checked in with all the time. So she was, you know, we, I'd call and say, okay, Paige, here's something we need to decide. What do you think? Um, the first time we highlighted her as um, the junior author of the week, we, you know, I did kind of like this cool interview format for her and then we put it in the paper and um, just kind of the whole thing is let's celebrate kids. Let's give them a way to contribute to what's happening to their community. Um, but going back to that very first kind of moment, um, so that was Labor Day weekend that everything happened. And I so vividly remember that, you know, everyone was complaining about the smoke. And I was, <laughs> I mean, this is such a specific piece, but I, it was 6 a.m. I was at a cycle bar class outside. Um, I was thinking about, you know, I had messaged Ty, kind of like, how can I help? Can I send you a credit card number? I know you're trying to stay open and like help people on their way down the hill. It was so heroic and wonderful, uh, you know, like 
I don't know how to get a hold of people. I don't know what's happening. And uh, I was just crying, you know? And so um, when it had been confirmed that so many of the houses in the Pine Ridge area and Crestman's, um, you know, were lost, that was on Tuesday. So Wednesday I woke up and I was kind of like, gosh, okay, I'm going to write a book for these kids because in my therapy lens, it was, you know, what is it? that we can do to support these kids right now, because now they're in COVID, they're evacuated. If I help support these kids, that helps directly support their parents too. And we know that if kids are, you know, a mess, it, I couldn't even imagine being evacuated with, I have a three and a six-year-old, um, evacuated. And then my six-year-old, but what about our Hot Wheels, mom? Like you said, I'd be able to go back and get my Hot Wheels. And, you know, just that bombardment of, you know, being a parent and trying to navigate what's going on and process things. And it just felt like so much. And so I thought, well, the last thing that a parent in that situation is going to do is think, what would I be doing to help clinically move my child through the grieving process of losing their home? You know, that's not kind of like the first thing. And so the so I woke up Wednesday morning, wrote a book, and then was just kind of like, okay, how do I publish a book? Because that's never happened. Um, but the book itself is about traveling the journey. So it's kids, that way kids in the area can see their journey represented. And so it's a girl and her dog, and the dog loses his doghouse in a fire. And um, the girl's the hero and ends up rebuilding the whole community and all the homes that were lost beyond where hers was, but all of the animals. And so it's really focused on community and rebuild. Um, and so as I was learning about how to just <laughs> like, what things do I need to do? I, you know, so I had an editor, I, you know, got an editor. Um, I bought my ISBN number, you know, I was taking all the classes on how do I self-publish well? I'm not going to do this and have it not be exceptional. So what do I need to do to do this really well? And it was about three weeks in, I was just kind of like, you know, I was, I was watching my son have an absolute horrific meltdown from distance learning. And I was kind of like, gosh, kids need to be involved in something right now. Everything just feels so disconnected. So I just, it was just a concept of, well, what if I create a way for kids to vote and then they can all be a part of building the book because that'd be super fun and be connecting and speech pathologists, we work in kind of like a field of three or a field of four. So I present all my choices as a field of three and then kids get online and they vote and those are the things that go in the book. Um, but it's really, you know, kind of this collaborative process focused on rebuild, focused on community, focused on contribution. Um, but kids have been able to, from the area, from Fresno Clovis, but then, you know, from all different states and countries have been able to contribute. And it's been really neat to watch, um, like the map that you saw before when I first logged in, um, I am able to show that to the kids up in the mountain community of here's how many people are participating and supporting. And then, you know, then all of the proceeds, everything, um, goes to them, the kids who lost homes. And so, uh, the schools, like I've done some live principal and author vote. So like all the kids log in after school and we do a zoom poll and we do that and then enter it all in. And, um, the kids that, you know, some of them are affected by the fire. Some of them, not at all. Some of them are so far away. They're all so excited because they get to help, you know? And so there's this very kind of young participatory philanthropy aspect of, you know, and I talk to each class that I am talking to, like when you do a project, you have the opportunity to help people or not. So what do you don't, what do you want to do? 
And they're like, we want to help. And then like one of the third grade rooms the other day, the chat was blowing up. Like, I love helping people. Me too. This is the best day ever. I can't wait to do more. You know, they're just so excited about helping in some way. Um, so yeah, the goal is just to kind of make it accessible. Like let's let kids help kids and let's help kids that are in these situations feel seen. That's awesome. And I, I, I find it to be true that, um, kids know when something is for real or not, right? They have a sense that, and, and you, you can, you can tell when, and I've seen it most in competition, um, in my world, which was uh, speech and debate, which is what I coached or have coached. Um, when, when a kid writes an essay for an English teacher, you're going to get something, right? You're going to get something. Um, sometimes it's good, sometimes not. Um, but if a kid is writing a speech that they're going to deliver to a room full of their peers in a competition format, I mean, they're going to come down off the mountain with those tablets chiseled in something perfect. Um, and, I, and that really lends itself to the, the kids understanding that something is just not a classroom activity, that it has real tangible, uh, something's coming of this. And I think that is an underrated thing in education because I think it really, it, it makes school, it connects it to real life. Right. And, and I, you know, I, obviously every class can't do something like this every day, uh, but you can gear things around publishing. You can gear things around supporting a community. You can gear a lot of things around that. Um, and so I applaud this. This is so great. And I, I think it's awesome opportunity for kids to, to contribute to something because we're, they're all, I mean, I teach, you know, I'm a school teacher, so I'm with them every day. Um, there is just some serious like hopelessness and apathy as a result of that happening, which is perfectly understandable. I mean, you know, we, at our school, we're, you know, we're talking through like, well, how are we going to deal with promotion with half of the kids failing or whatever? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. how are we going to, cause right. And right. It's, it's not their faults. Right. And it, no. you know, and it's, so it's like anything, anything positive right now is just well, and, godsend. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And you know, it's, it, it's really, it's been developed during this time, right? And so it's been reflective of seeing that need and saying, oh my gosh, kids need something to be involved in. And in a very specific kind of example, my son who's doing, you know, he's kinder. So he learned real quick to mute himself before he was going to yell at the screen and then unmute himself. And I was looking at him thinking, oh my gosh, this little six-year-old, wow, five-year-old at that time. Um, but, you know, it was pulling teeth to do packets and it right. became this behavioral thing and this discipline thing, this whole thing. And I thought, you know, I'm geared for this. I have all the behavioral systems. I have all the token reinforcement. And if this is hard on me, I can't imagine if I didn't have those types of things to bring in. Right. Um, but the moment I gave him anything that was connected to real life, you know, it was so simple. And he's like, oh, let me spend an hour writing this. And it was really neat watching him in that first couple of weeks of, you know, I was writing the book, but I wasn't talking about it a lot at home. Um, he started stapling papers together and he, for the first time in his life was writing. It said like, O-U-T-H-O-O-R, Hudson. And I was kind of like, how cool that you're calling yourself an author. And then 
all he wanted to do was write books and I couldn't get him to do anything in the packets that he <laughs> would like earn, like he would do stuff to earn to be able to do that. So we just created a whole bunch. I was working with curriculum developer and um, graphic design and just creating like, what is it that we can provide teachers right now that would be helpful in kind of building that bridge into this like intimate kind of bond with literacy and holding that book and saying like, Oh my gosh, I contributed to this. I remember this vote. I picked this one. Like this is the doghouse I chose. Um, you know, and then having all of the work that goes along with it. So like last week we did uh, illustrator notes was kind of like the behind the scenes publishing video. And so we had kids and they're real sketches from the books. So I think there's just, it's fun seeing it kind of all the way through. Um, but they had to match the illustrator note with the actual sketch and just kind of seeing the behind the scenes of it. Um, and the next year we get to kind of moving away from disaster relief. Um, there is, is kind of like a whole kind of other piece to just support kind of that transition back into school and literacy and kind of getting things caught up. And so um, junior authors in that sense next fall will be just really based in literacy building and kind of like, let's do engaging things with kids and let them see behind the scenes with the author and illustrator and, you know, kind of like develop these things and be part of the process. And then those will all be school fundraisers. So, you know, they get the book at cost and then they can sell it and use the money to like do good things in their community. That's so amazing. Well, speaking of books, let's close by talking about some books that are important yeah. to you. Uh, do you have some book recommendations for us? So at the beginning of COVID, so Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod is, you know, I sat on it for so long and um, I really, during this has been a lifesaver. Um, you don't get up I, at 4.30, do you? And do a I, bunch of stuff, do you? I, I have been working <laughs> an embarrassing amount of hours um, and it all starts at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, no, it's been like 80, hundred hour weeks. It's been nuts. And so it's not sustainable <laughs> to do that. But, right. but the morning part, I really have learned to cherish that because with, you know, with COVID, with young kids, having that place and time to kind of like center. And I'm not a morning person at all. Any roommate I ever had in college will tell you I am not a morning person. Um, but that's been a game changer for me. Right now I'm reading The Joy of Missing Out. Um, Tanya Dalton. And, and it's just kind of like the opposite of the fear of missing out, but just really embracing missing out and knowing what is it that you're gaining from that and kind of reframe of that perspective. Um, the book that was on my nightstand that I loved and it just had great little chunks was um, if I could if I could tell you just one thing. And so he writes, he goes and kind of interviews these amazing people and asks them for their one piece of advice. And it's, you know, it's so thought provoking at the end of the day. And, you know, it just kind of brings in kind of what is it that you want people to remember? And, you know, if you ever have kind of that legacy feel, you know, it's kind of like, gosh, what is it? that is going to be important about what I've done and not just spinning my wheels, but doing something that's really valuable for the community. So yeah, that's a great one. That's awesome. And I, you know, I think ending the day with like something kind of positive to percolate on uh, before you go to sleep is really great. Um, my, I, I, it's not necessarily positive, but I've been listening to Obama's memoir before I go to sleep and just kind of like listening to that story 
And I, you know, there's something about Obama reading you a bedtime story that's very soothing, Um, you know, in Chicago, right? Um, So, um, but uh, going back to the second book, the fear, the what? So it's the fear of the joy of missing out. The joy of missing out. Mm -hmm. So recently, I interviewed Lindsay Callahan from United Way, and we talked Mm -hmm. a lot about both of our issue, which is. we have serious FOMO about opportunities, job opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. potential projects or things. And I probably need to pick that one up because for me, closing doors to anything that I could miss out on is it going back to an earlier point, like dental work. It is, it is not fun. And I, I, you know, it's a hard one because, it is. you know, you don't know what a door has, right. And you don't know, you know, when you close that door, you can't see what's on the other side. (laughs) Well, I think when you genuinely like people, it's hard to do that too, you know, and I, um, yeah. So part of, you know, she calls it in her writing, like the North star. So kind of identifying what is it that is truly, you know, that thing that you're working toward. Um, but I, you know, kind of like managing urgent versus importance and, you know, just some of those little things that are so tiny, but help you kind of, take a step back and look at, you know, and I think all of us have a really unique opportunity transitioning back into what quote unquote will be regular life, you know, of kind of like figuring out what is the new norm? What does that look like? You know, Um, like I haven't gone out to eat a ton, you know, we order food, but you know, just like, I'm not doing all of the things because there aren't all of the things to do. Um, So it's really easy for me to say right now, yeah, I've totally got that down. And then things will open back up and I'll be like, Oh yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, where can people find more about the junior authors program and how can, how can people help if they're interested in contributing? Yeah. Um, so juniorauthorsprogram.com has all of the information. There's a Facebook page. Um, the, what I think is probably the most helpful is just for people to follow along right now. So, you know, being involved in the updates and um, getting those little, you know, which, which things are happening. We have a book, like the kids themselves are, we're scheduling and doing a book launch for them on April 17th. And so they get to physically be signing the books and selling them. And we have, you know, um, the highlight is on them. They get all of their awards. They get, you know, a big celebration day. So anything that's related to that and, you know, kind of like, I want to buy a book or I want to donate or I want to, you know, we'll all go out in those emails. So, um, you know, any of the votes are posted on the website, um, all the materials for teachers, the um, publishing videos, all of that is all, it's all there. Um, yeah. So, awesome. and then my practice is through central Valley stuttering center.com. So that's, there's a lot of ways to find me. Awesome. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun, Susie. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's our show for today. Make sure you give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That goes a long way to help others finding the show. And if you feel so inclined, uh, you can support us financially at www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best, where you can give us a gift to help make this show sustainable. Until next time.